So, um, If you can remember the three points I'm going to make in my sermon today, mum and dad are going to buy you an ice cream straight after church. And more importantly, if mum and dad can remember the three points I'm going to make, you're going to wash the dishes tonight, all right? So you're all, all with me here. Let's, uh, let's get down to some more serious things, perhaps. Uh, I, I might begin with prayer for a minute. Lord Jesus, our lips are not adequate to express this glorious hope that we have from you, but we are going to try. I do pray as we work our way through these marvellous words that we've read this morning, um, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, well beyond any words I might try to put together. I pray as we walk out today, you would fill us with a sense of the great hope we have in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year since Barnabas. This is that funny weekend in the year where we kind of draw a line, don't we? And we call everything behind us last year and we're eager to leave it behind and we throw everything in front of us and call it next year or in fact we call it this year. And uh, I suppose for many people around the world, uh, it's an important line at the moment. People are very keen to leave 2020 behind, obviously, Uh, and are eagerly anticipating what 2021 will bring in terms of a coronavirus vaccine that is going to magically give us back our normal lives, normal getting together, normal hugging and kissing, uh, normal business, normal travel, and everything that we have missed. Looking forward is what the new year is about. And we have a word for this, don't we? It's the word hope. Hope is all about both what we expect and what we desire, what we're, looking at coming, what, what we're looking ahead is coming, and what we're hoping or desiring is coming. Now, we've been very fortunate, obviously, to be living in a coronavirus bubble. Our lives have gone on, for most of us, more or less um, unchanged. And I couldn't help but notice on our recent holidays that for many Aussies on holiday, life hasn't changed. They haven't had to rethink anything. It's just kind of rolled on, and as they roll into 2021, uh, they're just pursuing the great Aussie dream as always. So I thought we'd have a little look at the great Aussie dream for a minute. Um, Steve, that's the YouTube we want to have a quick look at. Not suitable for children, apparently, Um, but there it is. No, it's fine. There it is. The great Aussie dream. Just, just one Powerball stands between you and the great Aussie dream. You, know, you want to know what the odds of winning Powerball are this week? Yeah. What, one in... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't have the numbers. I just have the odds. 
One in 135 million. Pretty good odds, aren't they? Um, actually, most Aussies are a bit more pragmatic than that. Uh, we'll settle for a great deal less than a Powerball at, at much better odds. So many of us are happy with just a new kitchen, maybe, or a, uh, a brand new car. Uh, how about a dream holiday? Or how about an overseas holiday? Or perhaps even an interstate holiday would do for some of us. Um, what about that dream guy? or that dream girl, or that ice cream after church. Um, Our expectations are very different. Um, We'll come back to the great Aussie dream in a while. This is going to be the first of five weeks we're going to do um, in the book of Colossians, a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church he hadn't actually planted and didn't actually have a personal relationship with. It was actually planted by Epaphras, who'd been converted during uh, his two years of ministry in Ephesus. And now, we're some years later. Epaphras has come from Colossae, bearing news about this church to Paul, who was a prisoner in Rome. And the news that Epaphras brings causes Paul both delight and concern. His delight is very obvious in the opening verses of the thanksgiving that he prays. Uh, in, verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. We always thank God when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all his people, the faith and love that spring up from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And likewise, Paul's concern for this congregation is equally well summarised Uh, at the end of the long thanksgiving he's giving here in verse 23, where he says, Stand firm in your faith. Don't move from the hope held out to you in the gospel. The word that binds together both Paul's delight and concern, that brings together this whole chapter we've read with its thanksgiving, its prayer, and in fact its song. You might have missed there's a song in there. The word that binds all this together is the word hope. Now, you've met faith, love, and hope together before. They frequently hang out. Um, And as we go on in the letter to the Colossians, Paul is going to unpack what the life of Christian faith looks like, what the life of Christian love looks like. But he wants us to begin here with hope. Let me say quickly, faith in the New Testament is more than what we would call simply belief. Because in English, belief is very often simply about what's going on up in my head, what, I, what intellectual process I agree with, whereas most often in the New Testament, uh, faith is an action word that we would often better translate as trust. It's what I do in response to what I believe in my head, in response to what I find to be reliable or trustworthy. And likewise, this word love in the Bible hasn't very much to do with our modern notion of love as an emotion or a feeling that we have, so much as, again, an action. What we do in the way we relate to other people. So we'll unpack those as we go on. But the starting point for both of these in the Christian life, Paul says, is hope. Hope is what causes faith and love to mature. And uh, if you have the NIV as your English translation, I think it expresses it best when it uses the metaphor of springing up. 
And that both brings to mind perhaps a plant springing out of fertile soil and growing or uh, water springing up out of the ground. Hope is the root. Hope is the wellspring of Christian faith and Christian love. So what is it that we Christians are hoping for? What is it that we expect? Where are our desires fixed? Well, hope came to the Colossians, Paul reminds them, through their hearing the gospel. He says that in verse 5, and he'll actually remind them again in verse 23. The gospel, literally, good news, is what gives us hope. And so it's this good news that Paul unpacks as he goes through his thanksgiving, his prayer, and his song. Let me walk you through it briefly. I wish we had five weeks just to do this passage, but we don't. Um, He begins in verse 9 in his prayer. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit give so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So the first thing we say is that looking forward... The gospel gives us a purpose, living in a manner worthy of the Lord. Actually, the metaphor that Paul uses here is the metaphor of walking. And we're going to come across that again as we go through Colossians. This is the main metaphor of what the Christian life looks like, a walk. Four statements then follow and then tell us what a purposeful life looks like. In verses 9 and 10, he says, It's a life that bears fruit. In every good work. It's a life that grows in a knowledge of God. It's a life that is strong and has endurance and patience. And it's a life of joyfully giving thanks. Now, again, I'd like to unpack all of these, but it's the fourth one that has my attention at the minute because that that brings us right to the heart of the gospel where we learn to hope. Verse 12 giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. So whatever else it's going to mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, it means these two things at least. We are a people who have someone to give thanks to, the Father. And we are a people with something to give thanks for. Not wearily, not not begrudgingly, but with joy. So that even in the midst of suffering, Christians have a real reason to experience joy. We have an inheritance in front of us. So with the time that remains, I have two points to make. Only two? Oh, sorry, kids. I guess you're out of washing the dishes. After all, two points I want to make. The first is that Christian hope is the eager, sorry, Christian hope as the eager expectation of a future inheritance is very matter of fact. It is pragmatic. That's the word I want to use. The second point I want to make this morning is that Christian hope is pragmatic because it is also personal. It is grounded in the person of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So what do I mean by saying that Christian hope is pragmatic? Well, something is pragmatic if it's down to earth, if it's sensible, if it's rational. 
I said earlier on that, that we Aussies are generally far too pragmatic to really rest our hope in a Powerball at odds of 1 in 135 million. Although having said that, it does appear from what I can discover that most Aussies have not slowed down uh, during COVID. They're buying lotto tickets as fast as ever. I want to contend the Christian hope presented by the gospel is very pragmatic. The language that Paul uses here is not fairy tale language. It's not abstract, spiritualized talk. This is language very firmly rooted in space and time. Look at verse 13. Paul tells us that God the Father rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Look at these words. Rescued, kingdom, redemption, forgiveness of sins. This is historical language. This is language drawn from the Exodus story of God's dealing with his people, where he brings them out of slavery in Egypt at a point in time, delivers them to a land he's promised them, and there establishes them and places over them uh, prophets, judges, and finally a king to rule over them. These aren't bedtime stories for children. These aren't the kind of stories that we have in our Bible, which are great for Sunday school. They're great to give to the kids because they keep them entertained. These are stories for us. This is history. And this is history preparing us for the ultimate kingdom, the kingdom of the Son he loves, who brings the ultimate act of redemption. The whole story of Israel is simply preparing for that. And as Paul goes on in verse 15 into what is actually a song, we think, he tells us about the son into whose kingdom we've been brought. And as he does so, this language takes us even further back in time, right back to creation. Jesus, the son, we are told, is the image of the invisible God. The image is a description we heard this morning, originally applied to the man and the woman in the garden, created in God's image, and that meant they were God's representatives. That's what image means. And as God's representatives, they were there to share in God's rule over creation. Now what we're discovering in Jesus is that the spoiled image of humanity is now being restored in the image of Jesus Christ, who took on flesh who as God becomes a man and then takes up our vocation as humans, what we were meant to do in the garden. And it isn't going too far to say that he becomes then the only truly human being, the only true image bearer, because he bears that image in a way that we have never been able to do. He fully fulfills our vocation by being the only man who completely trusts the Father. And as a man, he is also the man who enters fully into our experience of humanity. He's a man who goes and dies a real death at a time and place in history. He's also a man who rises from that death into a renewed body. And that's a real, resurrected, physical body. What we discover in God the image 
in, in Jesus, sorry, the image of the Father, is that what began in creation is now being brought to completion in the resurrection of the Son and his giving of the Holy Spirit. And this is why, from the cross, Jesus will cry, It is finished. And this is important to know, you see, because God's history of redemption is not a series of acts by which God tries to repair the damage that we have done at the fall, uh, a, 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 a process where he, he comes up with a solution that says, well, I'll abandon what I began there and I'll kind of start again. And what I'll need to do is I'll need to save human beings out of time and space um, and they'll need to become disembodied spirits and come with me to heaven. Now, that is, strangely enough, the kind of stereotype of what Christian hope is that most non-Christian people have, and maybe a few of us as Christians have, but I want to say that is not at all the vision of Christian hope that the New Testament gives us. Jesus' death on the cross brings creation to its purposeful close. I think, and I know I'm probably sailing very close to the wind theologically here, I think he does this in the only way possible. I think the cross is a necessary part of creation. Salvation is essential to creation. Because who we are now in Christ is not the same as who Adam and Eve were without him. We see then that Jesus is described as the firstborn over creation. Now, this is not a maternal metaphor. This is not a mother giving birth to a child, so the child is now the, the first thing that she has produced. Uh, I'm sorry to say, whether you like it or not, this is a patriarchal image. This is uh, the image in antiquity where the firstborn son had all the rights. He inherits. And that means he gets the father's name, he gets the father's legacy, he inherits the father's wealth, he gets the father's blessing. So in other words, Jesus is the heir of all creation. He is its rightful Lord. It has all been prepared for him. And we learn something even more startling than that. All things in heaven and earth were created not just for him, they were created by him. And through him, that means Jesus isn't just the owner, he's also the architect and the builder of it, the chief tradesman, because everything exists for him. And that means Jesus Christ doesn't belong to the creation because he existed before all things and all things hold together in him. We don't, sorry, we make sense of creation in the light of Christ. We don't make sense of Christ in light of creation. He is the uniting principle of the universe. And so in this creation he has made, every force, animate or inanimate, is subjected to him. Every spiritual entity we cannot see, every human authority we can see. He is the king of all of it. He rules it as the Son in the image of the Father. And as we come into the Gospels, we see that kingship declared 
nowhere more clearly than at the cross, where Jesus the Creator also becomes Jesus the Saviour. Jesus the Creator enters into creation, God incarnate, and not only to die, as you know, and to go into a tomb, but to rise from the dead. God the Creator goes into the grave and rots. But then his disfigured and decomposing body is recreated and renewed. Do you see in all of this that Jesus doesn't bypass creation? Salvation doesn't do without creation. He enters it as a man, with a body, with all that implies about living as a man, living as a person in a body. And so he shares in the fate of soiled creation. He shares in our fate to the point that he will suffer and die for our sins, for the brokenness and the rebellion of humanity. And he does so then also to rise as the true man. He doesn't leave his humanity behind when he ascends into heaven. He doesn't shove his body off as as a kind of a shell. He takes it with him. Here's a mind-blowing thing. His humanity, his physical body, remains a part of him. It is taken into the Godhead. Get your head around that if you can. Then Paul goes on to tell us he's not only a firstborn over all creation, he takes his place then over the church. He's the beginning of the church, Paul says. The firstborn out of the grave. And now firstborn does become a maternal metaphor. It is the picture of of the first child of many yet to come. The first resurrection that paves the way for our resurrections. Our resurrections into the same completed humanity that Jesus has. To become human, fully human, as God really intended. That's our hope. C.S. Lewis liked to refer to this present existence that we live as the Shadowlands because he contended that life as we know it is merely a shadow of the glorious thing that is yet to come, which will be beyond all description, really. And if you want a fun description of it, uh, his little book, The Great Divorce, which has nothing to do with marriage, um, gives your imagination a bit of food um, to try and picture that. So I said Christian hope is pragmatic. And we know it's pragmatic because it takes the stuff of creation seriously. It takes our humanity seriously. It takes our physicality seriously. So the cross is an act of salvation more practical and down to earth than anything else I know. It has more to do with real life than anything else. Well, I said my first point was that Christian hope is pragmatic. My second point, my final point, is that Christian hope is pragmatic because it's personal. You see, at the centre of the good news that Paul has begun to explain is a person the person of the Father, and the person of the Son. 
the Father who qualifies us to share in this inheritance with his people, the Father who rescues us, the Son who gives coherence to reality, who makes sense of the world about us. This great hope we have isn't something we make for ourselves. It's something they do for us. So what we discover is hope is not centred around me at all. It's centred around the triune God. Remember that um, Paul has prayed for these Christians. And it's worth noting what he has prayed for and what he hasn't prayed for. He hasn't prayed uh, that God will give them a Powerball. I mean, imagine the ministry you could do with one Powerball. Um, and, you know, I think God is pretty good for odds at one in 135 million. I think he can do that. Um, think what we could do. Nowhere does he pray prayers like that. He's asked for far greater riches, that they would know God's will, that they would be given the Spirit's wisdom and understanding, and that therefore they would come to walk and live in a manner worthy of the Son. He hasn't asked that they would have more stuff He has asked that they would come to participate in the very life, the very counsel of the Father, that we come to share in what he is doing. And indeed, the the call of the Christian life, this, this journey we are on, this walk, Paul tells us, is an invitation to walk with him. The call of Jesus Christ is very simple. It's come, follow me we'll discover, is what that's about. It is not ever simply go and do. It is always first and foremost, come follow me, before it will ever be go and do. And frankly, this is a journey we've only just begun. Paul himself says uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, for now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Or as the King James puts it, I think much better, through a glass darkly. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am known. As the New Testament draws to a close, it brings us to a marvellous picture of what the Christian hope is. Not a disembodied existence of souls that have floated off and gone to heaven, but of a city prepared in heaven, a people prepared that have come to earth. A redeemed humanity living in a renewed universe, new heavens and a new earth. People who are a bride prepared for a bridegroom, a people who are a city indwelt by the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, eternally in their presence, eternally sharing with them what it means to be fully human, what it means as fully human people to rule. That's the expectation we have. That is what lies ahead of us, no matter what else 2021 may or may not bring for us. Well, let me conclude with another picture 
uh, that contains a helicopter. That's the last. Thanks, Steve. There is a helicopter. You can just see in the distance there. This is a very different helicopter picture and a very different family. Um, this is a young couple um, that grew up in the youth group of the church that we have uh, were recently a part of, uh, met and have married. Bertie is a helicopter pilot, and they have packed up everything and gone to work in Papua New Guinea. And even in COVID, they've, they've made their way back again. Bertie's going to fly helicopters to deliver uh, missionaries that work for Wycliffe. It's pretty down-to-earth kind of work, really. You have to ask yourself, why would a young Aussie couple invest all their time, all their training, everything they have, to take their family to a very poor, malaria-ridden nation in order to fly helicopters? I can tell you it's not because they were people feeling especially guilty or feeling especially obligated to do some service for God. I can tell you that it's not because they're good humanists who feel that they are making the world a better place for other people. It is because they have a hope, a hope in someone and a hope in something far more valuable than the lifestyle they might have had if they'd stayed in Australia and used their gifts to pursue the great Aussie dream. So here's a hope that has grown a trust in Jesus Christ and a love for his people to the extent they will sacrifice that. Knowing, no matter how it turns out, and there is no assurance it will turn out well for them. They know that. Knowing that no matter how it turns out, something far better lies ahead for them. The Saturday night crew get the privilege of grilling the preacher. Um, And uh, the one question that came last night, which was a good question, was, well, how do we do this? Practically, how do we do this? Um, And I haven't got anything prepared in front of me. Two things I'd probably say about that. One is that it is a walk. That's the word we're going to use as we go through Colossians. And a walk happens one step at a time. Every day. Uh, when we go hiking, occasionally um, we will pass people on the trail and you kind of want to know, you know, how f- you know, people coming the other way, how, how far is it to the next hut? And sometimes they, you know, they'll say, you're nearly there, it's around the corner, or this is the halfway point. Uh, sometimes they'll say, like one lady said to me a couple of days ago, just keep walking. <laughs> it's the only way. But the metaphor that helps me most is one that I've, I've cribbed off Tim Keller. Um, he will frequently bring us back to the gospel. And remember, hope grows from the gospel. If you want to grasp hope in your life, we grasp it by remaining with the gospel. And the metaphor, the picture that Tim Keller uses, as someone pointed out to me this morning, is a very North American metaphor. And less like me, you have a fireplace. The metaphor is coming and warming your hands by that fire. That's the place where Christians should come constantly. We should ask ourselves, where do I normally take my hands and warm them? What normally warms my hands? Well, here's the picture to take out with you today. What if we come to the gospel again and again and we learn to warm our hands by that fire? That is where hope grows and out of hope springs up faith and love. Hear the word of the Lord.